Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to another episode of Trundlebed Tales, the podcast about Laura Ingalls Wilder, historic foodways, one-room schools, and other social history. This is Sarah Utah, the host and creator of Trundlebed Tales. Find us all around the web under Trundlebed Tales and on your favorite social media platform. Uh, and be sure to like and comment on our podcast, no matter where you get podcasts. Now, uh, before we get rolling, ah. Did we just get Jason? Yes, you did. Oh, good. I am sorry you've been having trouble. For the folks out there in Radio Land, poor Jason has been trying to call over and over again. I have the guests call in because I have had extreme difficulties calling out before, but Jason is the first person I've had trouble with calling in, so I'm very sorry about that, Jason. It's okay. I was I was just like, what the heck? Phone lines are busy. Why can't I get through? <laughs> well, I, I think there must be something going on with the platform. I After we get done, I will have to uh, call in and say, hey, what's the deal? But I'm glad no you worries. got on. Um, and I'm going to put you in the green room just for a second for me to finish the opening. I just wanted to make sure it was you and let you know you were in the right place. Sounds good. Okay. So. Uh, with that, that is Jason Foley, and we are going to be talking about bees and honey trees today. But before we get going with that, it is time for a little housekeeping. And that is to remind everybody that you can be a part of the show Despite the troubles that Jason had calling in, hopefully that it is working. So if you want to call in, you can at 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. And I think the toll-free number is the one that something's going on weird with, so I'm I'm not going to even bother giving that today. You can also uh, comment in the chat room. And contact me on all your favorite social media platforms under Trundlebed Tales. Now, we are working um, on getting some, oh, that's my parlor clock going, making sure we know it's time to start the podcast. Um, so, uh, this is February, it's Laura's birthday month, Almanzo's birthday month, and Laura's death month. So, there's a lot of stuff that's been going on. Uh, I am hopeful that we will be getting the uh, get the looking ahead in Laura fandom this year post done. I'm going to try and get it done by the first week of March. So we will see if that happens or not. And um, other than that, just listen for our upcoming episodes. And with that, I think we have had enough 
uh, of housekeeping, and we are ready. We are ready to bring Jason on. So, uh, thank you again for persisting. I really appreciate it. And Jason, why don't you tell everybody who you are? Well, I'm Jason Foley, the owner of Foley's Russian Bees and the current uh, president of the Iowa Honey Producers Association. So, uh, I'm sorry here. That's what I get for clicking on the wrong thing. All right. So, (laughs) what is honey? Well, honey is simply the nectar out of flowers that bees have collected, and then they've dehydrated it down and mixed a few enzymes from their body with it, and then we extract it out, bottle it up, and sell it as a product in our stores. So uh, honey requires bees, and uh, where do honeybees come from? Well... If you're talking about the the typical honeybee here in the United States that everybody sees, um, that is a breed known as Apis mellifera that comes over from Europe. Um, Technically, there is some arguments out there where there is fossil evidence that bees supposedly did exist in North America, but the only recorded history in the United States of honeybees, whether it was Native Americans or otherwise, basically shows that the only the only recorded history is from pilgrims and settlers bringing over bees on um, cargo ships. So um, when were bees domesticated? Oh, goodness. I mean, one could argue that that really goes all the way back to, like, cavemen and stuff like that, where you have um, – even in today's practices now, you still have people carrying on very old traditions where you have like the Himalayan beekeepers where they lower themselves down on ropes and collect honey there. It, it wasn't so much making the bees domesticated as learning tricks about using smoke and protective gear and getting to them that way. Um, science has done a great job at um, making more docile breeds, but it wasn't as big of a transition as like wild canines becoming man's best friend. This is still fairly much a wild animal that we've just selected beneficial genetic uh, lines from. So what kind of um, hives do you use today in beekeeping? Well, I use Langstroth hives, and pretty much that is, well, when you consider that about 95% of the bees are all controlled by commercial pollinators and honey producers, every single person in that industry uses the Langstroth design. The 2% of beehives out there that are owned by hobbyists and stuff still predominantly they use Langstroth designs in those, but you will have some niche beekeepers here in the United States that try doing top bar hives. Um, some will play around with the uh, wear hives, which is basically 
if you took a top bar and cut it into sections and stacked it on top of itself so it was a, a vertical structure instead of laying out uh, longwise. And then there's uh, the long hive that basically somebody just took the, the long top bar hive box and made it so that you could put the Langstroth frames right into it. And that way they didn't have to make their own frames. They could still buy the Langstroth ones to put inside of it. But unless you get into third world countries, you're really going to see Langstroth everywhere. That's just been the design that was easy to replicate and gave beekeepers the best bang for their buck. So what does a Langstroth hive look like? It's going to look like your traditional photos of beekeepers working uh, a rectangular column stack of white boxes. Um, the boxes are basically 19 and 7 eighths inches uh, deep and they're 16 and a quarter inches wide. And you just keep stacking these rectangles on top of each other full of frames and that's what the Langstroth hive is. So uh, you were talking about frames. So the, the white box has these uh, things in it that look like um, uh, files in a filing cabinet, except yep. uh, it, the structure is a little different. What are, what's a frame look like? A, a frame is very similar to what you're talking about, where it looks like a whole bunch of files inside of the box there. Um, it's basically, it looks like a picture frame with either a plas uh, thin plastic sheet down the center of it or a thin wax sheet down the center of it. Um, more and more of the industry is turning over to plastic foundation in these frames as opposed to the natural wax because the wax uh, likes to break and get destroyed in your extractors if you're spinning them too fast. Um, and the, basically the plastic has more longevity to it for being cleaned off and reused. But anyhow, I'm getting off track there. It'll look like a picture frame with a thin sheet in the center, and then the bees build their honeycomb off of that sheet there, and it all follows bee space, which bees like like three-eighths of an inch. If there's more of a space than that, they fill it in with like burr comb or propolis. If there's less than that, um, again, they, they, they hate the violation of bee space. So they'll either fill it up or they'll try building an extra frame in any opening that's too big. So um, I am pausing because I am trying to decide if this might be a better place to ask something. Totally that I was going to ask later on, but I think I'm going to go ahead and do it. Since we're talking about frames and you were talking about extracting, uh, can, can you walk us through the process of um, how you get honey from the hive? So you've got the frame and the bees have built their bee wax on it. What happens next? Well, at some point the bees have collected enough nectar and dehydrated it down to um, a low enough moisture content that they'll put a wax capping over the top of it. When, you're frame, when you have a box that has all the frames with wax cappings covering the honey, you can, a lot of beekeepers will put a fume board on there. And basically that's a board that's treated with a chemical of stinky material that the bees don't like. 
and it'll push all the loose bees down deeper in the box and make them leave that honey super. So you can pull this off bee-free then, you know, that, that honey super, pull it off of the hive without any bees in it. Other beekeepers, they'll use like a, a high-pressure leaf blower and blow the bees out of it. Or like your hobbyist might take the frames out one by one and shake the loose bees off of it. But once you get those, you can pull it back into your, you know, big beekeepers would have a honey house for extraction, but your hobbyist will probably pull it into their kitchen or whatever. Um, you'll cut, you'll take one frame out and you'll cut the cappings, that thin wax surface off the top of the frame. And you'll put that into your honey extractor. It's a machine that'll spin the frames with centrifugal force and force the honey out of it and it will end up on the walls of the machine and then it slowly drips down the walls into a reservoir in the bottom and then there's a, um, a valve down there that you can open up and fill honey bottles or five-gallon buckets or 55-gallon drums. It, it all depends on the scale you're working at because like your hobbyist, they might have an extractor that has only a nine-frame capacity where your commercial guy probably has something that is anywhere in the 120 to 240 frame capacity, and he's filling big drums at a time. So they've got the, uh, the frame, and it has the honeycomb on it, and you just spun the honey out. Then do you clear off the, the, the beeswax honeycomb separately, or do you, can you put it back just as it is, or how does that part work? So once the honey is out of the frames, I mean, the, you still have beautifully built comb on those frames. They're just empty at this point. You can reload the boxes back up with these frames of drawn comb and put them back on beehives. And it actually saves the bee a lot of work because to build all that wax on the frames, um, the conversion rate is a bee has to, well, bees have to consume 10 pounds of honey to produce one pound of wax. So every time you're filling up these boxes with brand new fresh comb, the bees are just expending tons of honey that they could actually be just depositing into frames for the beekeeper. So that drawn comb frames are like gold to beekeepers. They, they don't want to destroy that. They want to put it back in the boxes and give it back to the bees. But some people do harvest the wax, right? Um, the majority of that wax actually used in the industry is just off those cappings that are cut off of the frames. Uh, huh. Those cappings, you'll, you'll cut them off, and usually you either have a, um, like a, a mesh surface that the cappings can go on and drip the honey out of them, or if you're talking larger scale, they have machinery that is like a mesh basket, and it'll spin it at a high velocity and force the honey out of those wax particles, the wax cappings, and they'll save that honey then again to use in the bottling process. And then they take the wax cappings and it goes through a rendering process where they clean it up. You, it basically, you melt it down in boiling water and water and wax separate so you can then get the wax to separate off, but all the... Um, solubles like the honey that the honey traces that were still there or any other debris stays down with the water and the water is then waste that goes off of the rendering process and you then end up with just pure wax that you can use for candles, lip balms, uh, lotions, soaps, 
Uh, it's used in like food products, like they'll coat uh, a lot of fruits and vegetables with a thin coat of wax. Uh, candies, M&Ms, they have a thin coat of wax on them, and that's what keeps them from melting in your pockets. Huh. That's really interesting. Okay, so uh, you have your frames, and you have the um, and you've cleaned them off, and you put them back in. What other mm-hmm. equipment would you need if you were going to be doing bees? Are you talking the hobbyist or the commercial guy? Because there's a much bigger list for commercial guys. The hobbyist oh, just needs basically a, a bee suit, a smoker, a hive tool, bees, and a beehive. And if they want, they can have the extractor. If they want to do it real old school, they can just um, scrape the honey and the comb off of the frames into cheesecloth and leave that over a container and the honey will, because you've broken up the comb as you were scraping it off, the honey will basically over the course of like 24 hours leak out of the cheesecloth into your container and then you can use all that wax for, again, those same reasons I listed before and etc. But you didn't have to buy yourself a Four hundred to fifteen hundred dollar extracting machine as a hobbyist. You just did it the free and cheap way with cheesecloth. So, what if we were going to do it as a business? What would you need? Well, as a business, you would you need a facility, um, at least a nice pole barn that was clean with concrete floors to be handling stuff. Um, you would want to have a forklift type machine that's for off-road use so you can pick up beehives and move them around. Um, oftentimes they call them um, um, swingers in the industry because they're articulated in the center of them. You can turn on a dime basically with these machines that have the forklift mass. Um, you'd need a flatbed truck so you can move the honey supers around and load up pallets of bees and unload them and etc. Um, you'll need a whole extracting line and the extracting line would be like an uncapping uh, tank. Uh, it's hard to describe. It's like a long trough that when you put the frames through a machined uncapper and it removes the cappings for you, it drops it down into a trough and lets you go ahead and line up like 50 of these frames in a row that you can either have a guy down at the end loading your extracting machines from that, from that table or you can pause if you're a smaller operation with taking the cappings off of frames, walk down to the other end, load your extractor, start it up, go back to the other end and start uncapping frames and going. Um, you'll need a big reservoir tank that you can then pump all this extracted honey up into for a settling process that most of the larger guys do. Um, Any fine wax particles that slipped by your uncapping process and got into your honey, um, that has a tendency to float. So a lot of times beekeepers will have large settling tanks that are, you know, 800 to 1500 gallons inside, bigger ones for even the larger operations but they'll skim the surface of it after like 24 hours and take all that particulate matter away so they don't have to uh, filter it as much when they're running it through their lines. Um, And then, uh, of course, after this whole settling stage, you would need a um, bottling um, set up there, whether it's just going into 55-gallon drums to be shipped off to 
food plants and honey packers or whether you do your own honey packing and you would have a whole assembly line that is filling jars and putting labels on bottles and boxing them up for going to store shelves. So, you know, it's, it could get pretty involved as you get bigger and bigger. So, um, it sounds like it's a lot of work. Well, I mean, in my case, it started out as a hobby with a single hive, and that turned into three hives, and then that turned into 15, and then it turned into my bee clubs wanting me to learn about queen rearing and making bees for them. And, you know, at some point it snowballed where I was spending so much time with bees and working a full-time job at a financial firm that I, I couldn't. I couldn't really do both very well. So I finally just quit the financial firm, took my retirement, sunk it into the beekeeping business, and I've grown it up into a pretty successful company so far. But a lot of beekeepers out there will probably be like, no, that's not a successful company because you're a sole proprietorship and you have no employees. Well, I'm as big as you can get without basically hiring employees and I personally don't want to put other people's livelihoods in my own hands. I, I make, I make a, a comfortable life, and I, I'm happy, and that's about as far as I want to grow with it. Well, that sounds like a good plan to me. I'm, I'm glad you're, you're doing so well. Uh, let's uh, back up to something that I heard another bee person say, and I think uh, I had never heard it is why I wanted to bring it up. But they said mm-hmm. that beekeepers can't eat bananas. Is that true? Well, I mean, you can. And I'm going to have some entomologist friends that are going to argue with me on this fact. But um, the myth is that um, if, if you're ever out working your beehives and the bees get really angry with you because you didn't smoke them and it's a cold, cloudy day and um, you dropped a frame or whatever – you're going to smell this banana scent. Um, It's the alarm pheromone chemical that the bees release to tell all the other bees in the hive, hey, we're under attack and go after anything that moves, basically. Um, It smells exactly like banana. Now, my entomologist friends will say, no, it's a totally different chemical complex when you break it down in a laboratory. However, um, I've been out with a lot of friends working my bees. I've also had significant others going out and working bees with me. I always warned them not to eat bananas. We'd be out there, and I'd go the whole day with not a single sting, and the person that ate bananas would get 50 stings that day. So there, there's some truth to it. I always think that's interesting. I find that there are things, especially about dealing with with animals, that uh, the experts are always saying there's no way this should be true. But, you know, if you deal with the animals a lot, you see it happen. So I always find those things kind of interesting. Heck, it may be as simple as just eating bananas makes you stinky to the bees. And everybody came up with the myth then because when you open the hive and the bees get angry, it smells like bananas to you and me, but whatever. For some reason, you eat bananas, you usually don't have a good time out there. 
So uh, we talked kind of about what you did as a beekeeper. What is it that bees do? Well, bees are just trying to live their lives, and their life cycle is sort of like any animal that's prepping for wintertime. Um, they go out there and they're collecting honey and pollen to store in their hives in excess amounts so that they can then make it through the months of wintertime or months of there being no forage. You know, like if you were in a warmer climate that had a really, really dry season and you were trying to make it through to when there was a, a nectar bloom in your area. So essentially, um, it's a super organism with a queen that's laying 1,500 eggs a day with a whole bunch of daughters doing the work of the hive. The worker bees are all girls, and they live for about 30 to 45 days, and they do a slew of jobs as they age, and one of the last jobs as they are older bees is being a forager and a um, sort of a, a defensive guard bee. So... The majority of these older bees will go out of the hive. They collect nectar. They accidentally pick up pollen because they're statically charged and they have branched hairs on their body that the pollen sticks to. They'll clean themselves and push the pollen down to the pollen baskets on their legs and they bring it back to the hive. I say accidentally because the bees do want the pollen. They feed the young larva a diet of 80 to 90% pollen and just a little bit of honey, and then the, uh, when they emerge out as adults, that flip-flops, and they actually are like 80 to 90% um, subsisting off of the honey and just 10 to 20% on pollen because they're, they're just designed to work themselves to death. They're not really designed for longevity. So they're constantly collecting the honey to build up into winter long-term stores. And that's essentially the life cycle of the hive there. The only other aspect is reproduction of the hive that besides the queen laying eggs in the hive to make more beehives, bees every time they get uh, cramped on space will basically swarm. That's when the hive uh, produces a new queen and the old queen flies off with around 60% of the colony to set up home in a new location. And then you end up with two colonies. Anytime those two colonies get crowded, they'll replicate into four and so on and so forth. So the bees are trying to focus on uh, getting honey for, well, basically the continuation of the hive as a whole rather than the individual bees. What do they do from the human's point of view? What is the benefit of having honeybees around? Oh, man. Um, well, the two, the two big easy ones for anybody to pick out is honey and pollination. Um, a third of every bite of food you take is directly related to um, pollination. Uh, basically bee pollination. If honeybees were gone, the pollination that still would happen from birds and butterflies is very, very minimal. Um, they're not very good pollinators. Honeybees are the most efficient pollinator that exists on the planet here because they are the basically the one major pollinator that when that worker bee leaves the hive for the day, the first flower it visits 
It doesn't matter what that flower is. The first flower it visits, it's only going to visit that type of flower all day. So anybody that has had any sort of a gardening or biology course or something knows that you can't take pollen from an apple blossom and put it on your tomato plants and get tomatoes. You need tomato pollen on tomato plants. You need apple pollen on apple blossoms. So that monarch butterfly that visited a dandelion and then went to your apple blossom and then went over to your cherry tree and then went over to your tomatoes did no good for you. Where that honeybee, she visited an apple blossom, then an apple blossom, then an apple blossom, and so on. Most effective pollinator that we have out there, and that's why we basically, and they live in huge colonies. So from a farming aspect, you can now farm an insect that does all your pollination work for you. So honey and pollination are the two big ones. You also have wax production that's used in all sorts of manufacturing industry, uh, cosmetics, um, simple candles. Um, it, it goes on and on. Um, propolis. Propolis is done in like tinctures and it's a headache medicine and it has other um, home remedy medicinals that people use it for. Um, honey can also be used as an antibi uh, antibiotic, basically. Uh, people can, if you haven't cooked it, the enzymes in it will actually uh, fight off infection if you put it on wounds. So, I mean, there's a whole slew of side products that you can get from bees uh, from the aspect of them being a critter that's doing their job and we're benefiting from it. So how long have people been eating honey? Uh, well, that goes back to the caveman. Uh, there's actually cave drawings that are dated back to like the Neanderthals that, uh, well, I may be naming the wrong prehistoric uh, entity there. So don't, somebody don't quote me that I, I said Neanderthal and it's really a different offshoot of mankind there. But anyhow, they have cave paintings of very ancient societies where people were collecting honey there. Uh, the Egyptians had uh, clay casks that they would lay on the ground and uh, the, the ones on the touching the ground, they'd stack them up in rows here, sorry. Think of it as a, a wall made of clay casks. The ones on the ground were for keeping insulation against the cool ground, and the ones on top were insulation for the sun beating down on it. But the ones in the center, the bees could build comb in there, and the Egyptians would harvest honey, and they'd use the wax for trying to do their um, statues and art. They would basically mold it out of the wax, and then they'd, um, well, getting off track here, but throughout society it's happened. Uh, the, um, you know, going back to like the 1400s and 1500s, they harvested it out of bee trees, you know, and uh, then you came up with one of the first man-made hives that was the skep hive, which is a woven basket, basically, that was very popular over in Europe. So it, it, there's a progression here, but it goes back to the caveman, basically. Does honey store well? I've heard about them finding honey from a really long time ago that's still, uh, well, they think edible. Yes, yes. Uh, they have found honey in Egyptian tombs that for all technical purposes is edible. Um, honey, honey is amazingly long-lived. It's A, antibacterial, and B, it's under a moisture content 
that it doesn't grow mold or ferment unless you unless you harvested it before the bees had it capped over or you left it exposed in a very humid climate where it could suck up moisture, honey will per- preserve itself. So once you bottle it, you could find a bottle 50 years old in your basement and you could eat it still. I'm not saying it would be as tasty or as pretty or the, the quality that you had the day you extracted it, but technically you can. Um, the honey would have likely have crystallized into a solid mass, and then all you have to do is put that in some – how do I put this? You want water that is uncomfortably warm for your hand to be in, but not so warm that it would actually burn you. But you can set your jar in just warm water there, sealed up, and – those crystals in that 120, 130 degree temperature will actually liquefy and turn back into liquid honey, and it's perfectly edible at that point. Yes, I always find that really cool. We uh, have that happen to our honey that we have, and uh, actually I have a particular place on a window where if it's happened that we set our jar of honey so it uh, gets liquid again. Uh, though it does get darker in color, I find, if, if you have to do that. Yep. Uh, over time, uh, warming honey or just the aging process of honey can darken it. It's it's basically yep. the warming it over and over actually converts the sugars in it, and but it it still it still has the enzymes in it. It still has the beneficial pollens in it. It still has. Um, you know, it still is the proper moisture content to not ferment, so it's still a completely edible product. So you, you've you been talking about honeybees. Is, are there different breeds of honeybees, or is there just one kind? Well, within just the honeybee realm, you have a whole slew of offshoots, um, sort of like um, horses versus mules or wolves versus dogs. You have um, Apis serrana, the Asian honeybee, that is totally different from Apis mellifera, the European honeybee. You have Apis dorsata, the Himalayan honeybee that is this giant honeybee that lives on cliffs, and Apis florea that is this itty-bitty tiny bee that lives in tropical rainforests. Um, There's a whole slew of offshoots that are still called honeybees but are not what we think of as honeybees, the European one. Um, The European one within that realm, there is a ton of breeds. Uh, you have Carniolans, Italians, Buckfast, um, Cordovans, Caucasians, uh, German black bees, Russian bees, ankle biters, um, VHS, um, Saskatraz. The list goes on and on and on there. And essentially think of it like your cattle industry where you have cattle that are really good for beef production and you have cattle that are really good for milk production. Or you have cattle that are built for tropical climates or Arctic climates. Um, The same thing is true in the beekeeping world, that each of these breeds has the things that they are best at and other things that they're not so good at. 
And most of the honeybees people keep in uh, in the United States are from the European um, breeds still yeah, today. Tip, typically, it's viewed as Apis mellifera, the European honeybee, is what's in the United States. Um, that is the big name, and underneath that, all those breeds that I mentioned are in the United States there for us to use in the beekeeping industry. Predominantly, uh, the northern half of the United States, you'll see a lot of carniolans being run because they're a colder weather bee, and Italians are predominant in the southern half of the United States. Um, they're not as popular in the north. Uh, commercial beekeepers that are doing pollination may still run Italians in the north, but um, they're taking their bees to a warm climate in winter months to do pollination services. The, the little drawback to the Italians is the queen never likes to stop laying. And in the wintertime, you, you kind of want less mouths to feed so you don't have to leave so much honey on your hives. So that's why the carniolan that is a darker cold weather bee, that queen does shut down in the wintertime and they will go with a smaller cluster through the winter requiring less supplemental feed for them. Does all honey taste the same? Um, between the breeds, yes, the breed doesn't matter for the flavor of the honey. The forage is what gives you slight nuances to the flavor profile of your honey. And a lot of that has to do with the pollens rather than the nectar coming in. The nectar plays a little role, but really the pollens are imparting more flavor to your honey than anything else. So you'll hear somebody say that they are eating clover honey. Well, that tastes slightly different than orange blossom honey. And that tastes quite a bit different than buckwheat honey, which actually has a little bit of a, a molasses flavor to it. And that tastes quite a bit different than basswood, which has a, a slight mint flavor to it. And it's all imparted by the plants the bees are foraging on. So uh, people often will like label the kind of honey it is uh, by what they're foraging on. How do you know if that all of the all of the honey in the hive came from that particular flower well if you actually took the honey into a laboratory you'd see that not all of the honey because they can examine the po pollen particles and identify the plants that it came from you'd see that not all of it is clover and not all of it is orange blossom but the the trick is the beekeeper moved hives into a giant farm of that nectar source to do pollination services. So like they moved it into an orange orchard to go ahead and get the added benefit of the bees pollinating the, the orange blossoms. And after the, the blossoms were done, the beekeeper moved the hives out for another crop, but he took the honey supers off and he extracted the honey, bottled it up and called it orange blossom honey. It only has to be predominantly from that nectar source to be able to label it that. You, you could never get 100% clover honey because nobody plants a field and does herbicides to kill off all other plants to just have clover in a field. But if you have, you know, you have 100 acres that you plan on uh, doing up uh, yellow clover for doing hay or alfalfa for doing uh, farm feed or whatever, you don't mind if, you know, a few other plants are growing out there. You're still going to 
bail it all up and feed it to your livestock. But the bees, you can move bees in onto that and then have a specialty product um, honey that you're selling. Okay. Well, the, another thing I wanted to touch on is that we've heard a lot about hive collapse. Uh, I haven't heard so much about it lately. What is the, what's going on with that? Colony collapse disorder, um, it came back a while ago, and it's always been a, a entity out there. Um, I'm not even sure. I know in the state of Iowa I can say these facts, but I know in other states there's actually some rules and regulations for what can be advertised and can't about this. Um, so if you ask the pesticide companies, they'll say colony collapse disorder is totally the fault of varroa mites, that they're carrying diseases into the hives that cause the colonies to collapse. Um, if you ask any country that has banned neonicotinoid pesticides uh, what the cause of colony collapse disorder is, they'll say it's the pesticides. Um, basically what happens is you can check your hive one day and it looks beautiful, all the bees are in there, it's going along like a happy-go-lucky um, colony of teddy bears out there. You know, they're fuzzy little bees inside the hive. You come back next week and you have a queen staggering around on some frames and you might have a handful of bees trying to take care of her and everybody else in the colony is gone. There's no dead bees on the ground outside of the hive, there's none in the hive. The bees have basically flown off and never returned back to the hive. And they've identified that essentially at this colony collapse this time, whatever the, the silver bullet is here or the, the magic cause of this, it disrupts the bee's ability to um, navigate. The bee has two types of navigation. One is it follows a path out to a flower and it follows the exact path back. The other way is it'll actually learn the lay of the land by doing ever-widening circles around its colony and it'll memorize the, the um, lay of the land. Well, at some point, its navigation system gets damaged and all the bees that are being born in this colony from that stage forward also have damaged navigation systems because this magic thing is present in there that Anyhow, we, we'll keep going with this. Uh, this magic thing is present, and it, all of the bees, when they hit the stage of going out and foraging, can't make it back to their hive, and they just die out in the wild. Well, bees will go ahead and take a younger generation when the older generation isn't present, and they'll send them out to forage. It's just a natural thing to step in when there's a lack of, lack of um, manpower basic, basically to complete the job. So that younger generation goes off the next day and never comes back. And the hive basically empties itself out over a few days time and you're left with this collapsed dying hive and you don't know how to fix it. Um, going back to that pesticide issue there, there are a few things that really push it in that direction. Um, the continent of Australia does not have varroa mites. So if varroa mites are the cause of colony collapse disorder, why does Australia still have colony collapse disorder present in their beehives in a continent that doesn't have 
varroa mites, the insect that people are pointing the finger at. Second thing, bumblebee hives also suffer from colony collapse disorder, and varroa mites do not feed and do not exist in bumblebee colonies anywhere in the world. So how is it they also suffer from the same colony collapse if varroa mites are the cause of the problem? You can kind of see how the, the facts don't line up, but you know, there's a lot of stuff out there pushing to point the finger in other directions. Just like when cigarettes were told to the public that they cause cancer, you know how many years it took to get Surgeon General warnings on that and get that actually out into the public and how many legal battles were fought over that. And that's kind of what the bee industry faces with neonics. So do you, is there still a lot of that happening? Has it, has it kind of reduced or has it been? It's a managed, it's, it's multifaceted. Uh, the pesticide companies are coming up with neonics that break down a lot sooner. The original ones, if you put them on your plants, they would exist in the soil for up to seven years. Well, the problem is, is you're constantly year after year applying this chemical and you're getting a heavier and heavier dose out there from the residuals over seven years time. And neonics actually can be deposited in beeswax and build up in concentration in your hive like that. So the new chemicals they're coming out with break down in one to two years now. They have a shorter shelf life, so they, they don't, even if they build up in wax, they also break down in the colonies because of their shorter lifespan. So it's less harmful to the bees. Uh, they've got new types of applicators for those that control dust coming off of seed uh, kernels that are coated with neonics. So the, the exposure for airborne particulates is far less. Uh, beekeepers also now try to keep their bees much further away from crops that would be heavy, heavily laden with the, these materials. And they only move their bees into crops for pollination services for a short window. And they, you know, they work with the farmers for those specialty crops that they aren't applying um, pesticides with these neonics during the time period they're trying to get the pollination services. So we have less and less exposure. Um, the industry also has just taken it on the chin that instead of having five to 15% colony losses in a year, that 30 to 40% is the norm. So that drove up honey prices. It drove up, drove up operating costs for beekeepers and stuff like that. But we can still manage because the average beekeeper can make 10 colonies out of one beehive. So even if you lose 30% of your bees, you can still easily replace those losses the next year by just splitting off your colonies. So it's multifaceted. So bees aren't nearly in danger. Wild, wild bees, and I wouldn't even say honeybees because every wild honeybee colony you see out there really probably last year or this year swarmed from a commercial or hobby guy's bee operation and moved into that tree because in the wild, honeybee colonies usually live one to three years before the environmental factors add up and kill them off. Without management, um, honeybees don't do so good on their own usually. Either varroa mites take them over and the diseases they carry, 
um, kill them off or they get enough pesticide exposure that that uh, diminishes their hive and kills them off. So wild hives really don't exist that much out there. It's, it's tongue in cheek because they're really not that wild. It's like if your pigs ran away and lived in the woods or something, but they still, they still were the pink, pretty little pigs that you had on your farm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I want to, I'm going to skip over one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because even though I still want to talk to you about, I want to make sure we get to the honey tree part. So uh, every year at the state fair, we go to the agriculture building. And if anybody's listening, that is the uh, on my touring plan for the Iowa State Fair episode. I talk about going to the agricultural building. And on the second floor, the best thing to see there is the Honey uh, Producers Association's um, uh, booth. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we're um, located just above the butter cow display. That's pretty much anybody visiting the Iowa State Fair. That's that's one of the landmark things for people to find is the butter cow sculpture. So you just go upstairs there, and uh, we're selling honey lemonade, uh, hand over fist to people, and we'll have honey products from um, members of our association from across the state. So you'll have Spring Valley, Ebert, P&P Honey, you'll have, um, oh, shoot, I shouldn't even name off the names because I'll start leaving people off here. But you'll have beeswax candles, you'll have hand soaps, you'll have lotions, you have flavored honeys, flavored creamed honeys. Um, in addition to just all the slew of products that we have there that people can buy, we also have a whole section there that is um, observation hives with um, – actual beekeepers that run these commercial operations and are highly educated sitting there basically answering the public's questions from 8 a.m. in the morning to 8 p.m. at night when the building closes, just day in and day out for 11 days of the fair. We have people just answering any question you can possibly throw at them and checking out the observation hive, seeing uh, the live bees uh, just running around there just three feet from them but hidden behind glass so they can't get stung themselves or have bees flying around. Uh, we also have all the tons of wax products and ribbons. You know, there's the, always a competition for everything at the state fair. And for the Iowa honey producers, it's no less. You have extracted frames. You have honey frames uh, that are still capped over for how beautiful they are. You have wax art. You have window displays. You have uh, people that are doing poured candles. Um, you have uh, a best tasting honey in the state of Iowa competition. You have people that are bottling for the, um, oh, I can't even say the word. There's like a European uh, judging system here for having six bottles of honey with the perfect clarity and a perfect color category and everything else. And they, they break that down by, you know, white honey, uh, light amber, amber, dark amber, and basically a black honey there and stuff. And there's, there's all sorts of competitions there that you get to see the people from across the state of Iowa who have entered into and who got the best of the best there. So, I mean, it's a, it's a very complex booth with lots of stuff going on there that I, I highly suggest to anybody to go check out if they're visiting the state fair. 
And I I think do some of the observation hives can the bees get out and go pollinate around the fair? Actually, all of them. Um, there's a tubing. There's a PVC tubing that are leading from basically the backside of the observation hive right out the wall of the building there. And bees are really good about coming back to the entrance they left from. And they mark them with their own pheromone scents and stuff from the, the queen. So each hive smells slightly different. So yeah, all through the fair, the bees in these observation hives are free to leave, go out and forage and bring back resources. Um, it's still a fully functioning hive, even though it's just two or three frames that you can see bees on through a glass plate. I just thought that was so cool when I found out about it because I'm like I said, we most years we go to the state fair and uh, there was I, we always looked at the hives and I never knew the bees could go get out for a long time so I just thought that was particularly cool. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, fortunately uh, we're on the second floor so nobody basically walks right in front of the ports that the the bees are coming in and out of. <laughs> Yes, I think that is, is a good thing. Um, the, one of those observation hives is set up like a honey tree. Now, uh, one of the things we talk about on this podcast is Laura Ingalls Wilder. And in Little House in the Big Woods, Pa finds a honey tree. Are honey trees a real thing? Or were they in the late 19th century? Well, even today... Um over in parts of Germany and Russia and other European areas there, there are still traditional beekeepers there with um, trees that have been kept in their families for hundreds of years that have their sam uh, family emblem on the tree marking that that's their ownership. And they have the trees set up over there that you can actually remove a plate or a section of the tree that you know, has been um, fully healed up for the last 50 years or 100 years, but it's a removable plate that they can take off of there, smoke the bees, cut out excess honey, and bring it home there for putting through the cheesecloth or just crushing up and straining and et cetera there. But um, honey trees do exist still here in the U.S. because bees will swarm out of a regular managed beehive. If they see a tree that... Um, the inside has rotted out of it and is a cavity in there, the bees will actually clean that up and they'll remove the loose material in there and they'll start propolizing the inside of it, which that's a collection of plant resins is propolis. So they'll go to like pine trees and et cetera. And they'll, they'll basically waterproof the inside of that tree and it'll actually add years of life onto the tree instead of perpetuating the rotting process there. But then they'll just form a colony inside the hive. So, you could walk out through the woods and if you hear a buzzing noise up in, you know, up above you, you might look up and see an open cavity there on a tree and see insects flying in and out of it. And that could be a bee tree. So in the book, Pa, of, I think he cuts it down. I, they're not overly clear. And he comes yeah. back and gets a whole bunch of um, containers in the wagon and fills them up with what was in the hive. And could somebody really do that and then do the, like, cheese cost uh, method you were talking about? 
Yes, you can. There's a, a slight consideration here. In the state of Iowa, it's actually illegal to kill a pollinator's colony. So if you were to cut down a tree and cut it open, by law, you should save the brood nest area and rehang those combs. You can take a wooden frames and rubber band sections of the comb inside of empty frames there and put them inside a hive. And as long as you got some of the young eggs and larvae, even if you didn't get the queen, if you got some of the population and young larvae, they can make a new queen. And then by law, you didn't kill that pollinator's colony. But yes, you could find a bee tree out there. You can cut it open and you could take all the honey for yourself and do stuff like that. I just wanted to throw that caveat out there that you know, there's that slight rule. You're just not supposed to go out there and kill a pollinator's nest. That's why if you ever call a pest control company and they find out that the pest you have is actually honeybees, the pest control company looks on their Rolodex and it has some beekeeper that they know of. And they'll say, call this guy. He can come remove this for you. You can't. You can't spray and kill it yourself. That is that is interesting. I have heard of people saying that. I didn't realize it was because there was an actual law. That's interesting. At least in Iowa there is. I'm, I'm not saying that other states have that exact law, but mm -hmm. Iowa has that little caveat there. So... Uh, and the other thing Pa says in the book is that he didn't take all the honey uh, honeycomb out so that the bees could take what was in that tree and move it to another tree. Was is that actually a thing? Would uh, bees no reuse? no no that that's that's a slight um, mistake of observation. Um, the bees aren't going to go back there, collect the honey, and then move to a new tree. That colony that was destroyed there, or if he just took some of the honey and left the brood nest portion, the area where the queen was laying and doesn't have honey, if he left that behind, they would just build back, and they would stay in that same tree. If he actually you know, did whatever process that he removed the brood nest and killed off the bees and took, the took most of the honey and just left some, Another bee tree in that book's case scenario in modern day, it would be somebody's managed colony within five miles. Um, open exposed honey smells really good and would attract scout bees and foragers, and they'd come and they would take honey themselves, go back to the colony, and through a waggle dance, tell the rest of the colony where this spot was at, and they would just show up in the thousands, and they would drink down all the honey and bring it back to their colony. So it would technically be a foreign colony that's taking all the honey and just using it for themselves. Well, that is very interesting. I I am very glad we got that in because I always like to fact check what's going on. It's um, when I tell people about Laura's books, and you don't know this because I just invited you, but I, I do programs <laughs> on Laura. And I talk about things that happened in the books. And there are things that I have to say, well, this isn't really true. Or, yeah, this would be illegal to do today. Like Pa had sets up a salt lick to get 
animals to come so he can uh, shoot them. And it's like, no, that's that's not something you can do now. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's so, illegal with deer hunting. You can't bait yeah. them. <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm always glad to get get. Uh, comments on what happened in the books from someone who knows. So I'm really glad we got to that. And um, for the people who are listening, the other thing I wanted to get to today, and we are out of time, so we're not going to get to, was the uh, ambassador program, uh, because I want people to know about what livestock uh, ambassadors do, because I don't think there's a lot of people out there who are aware of the program. And so we are going to come back to that in another episode. I guess I will have to try and get a hold of some actual ambassadors and do that. So uh, you got out of having to talk about that. I appreciate you coming on. Okay. Uh, and you want to tell people again where they can find out more about the Honey Association. Yeah, if you just go to iowahoneyproducers.org, we have a very comprehensive website there that'll um, give you a lot of information on beekeeping. It will give you um, classes all over the state of Iowa that are free or cheap for people to take to learn beekeeping. Um, It's got, um, you can go ahead and sign up to be a member of the Iowa Honey Producers there, and then you'll get a free monthly newsletter that'll keep you in the loop on new developments with legislation, with um, um, retailers of bees and beekeeping products, with stories from various people's bee yards and stuff there. So I don't want, you already said we're out of time here, but there's like another 50 things I could say are on the Iowa Honey Producers website, but iowahoneyproducers.org. And uh, your uh, company that you're, your company that you sell honey from, if people want to get honey that you made? Well, if they want to buy bees, it's Foley's Russian Bees. If they want to buy honey, it's Honey Hollow. And you can Google either of those, and I'll pop right up. Okay. Well, I, I got I got tired of always answering the question, what does Russian honey taste like? And that, that boiled down to the breed of bees, so I was like, I can't call my honey Foley's Russian bees anymore. I got to just have a farm name for this to sell my honey products. That sounds like it was the wise move. Okay. Well, with that, I think we really are out of time. Thank you so much for coming on. And I hope that uh, you had a good time. I'm sorry you had trouble getting on in the first place. No worries. And... With that, I'm going to remind everybody else to keep an eye out for our next episode. And remember to brighten the corner where you are.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.